following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. On May 11, 1960, the Mossad, which is Israeli secret service, arrested Adolf Eichmann in Argentina. Eichmann was the architect of the death camps, was arrested by the Americans, but not knowing who he was, they allowed him, not intentionally, but to escape. He fled with a false passport to Argentina, where he was protected even by a bishop in the Roman Catholic Church. And he lived there for 15 years. But on this day, on May 11th, the Mossad caught up with him and arrested him and would bring him to judgment. Now, the story of Eichmann is an analogy of what we mean by deferred judgment. The exercise of God's judgment that is postponed, which we began to consider last week in the first 17 verses of chapter 24. We saw in verse 1 that Job is uh, stating uh, the principle of God's judgment deferred with these two rhetorical questions. And then in verse two, verses 2 to 17, he gives the demonstration that God holds back in the exercise of justice. He, he sets before them and before us uh, the oppression of the poor, both uh, socially and commercially. He then moves to the uh, uh, wickedness of those who uh, pursue gross immoralities under the cover of darkness and says that God is, in a sense, winking at this folly or this sin. But in speaking of God's deferred justice, Job is not denying the justice of God, but rather he is highlighting the patience of God with sinners. Now, you remember why he's doing this. He's opposing the system. Now, he wants himself to believe the system. The system was that God, well, it's health, wealth, and prosperity gospel a few hundred years ago. God blesses the righteous in this life with prosperity. And if anybody is suffering, the way Job is suffering, that means he is wicked and God is judging him. Now, Job grows out of the system. He wrestles with it. But we see him... In each of his speeches, coming to more and more light as he argues with his friends, he's, he's pointed out to them, now look at life, look at the history that we know of the fathers, look at natural revelation. Innocent people suffer. Innocent in terms are not grossly wicked. And uh, the wicked often prosper. He goes on to show that prosperity in the life of the wicked. And now in chapter 24, he actually states that not only do they prosper, they, they go through life and run roughshod on the poor and, and, and the innocent neighbors around them. And defile their lives by murder and thievery, fornication and adultery. But Job has learned that God indeed is just. And so in verses 18 to 25... Job now spells out the reality of this delayed justice of God. 
And what, what we see here is though that God bears long with the wicked in this life, they will not escape his justice. Though God bears long with the wicked in this life, they will not escape his justice. In other words, positively, we're going to be, at the end of the day, considering this glorious truth of long-suffering or forbearance of God. Now, in order to unpack this proposition, we're going to consider two things this morning. God curses the wicked in this life, and God bears long with the wicked in this life. Now, first, God curses the wicked in this life, and we see this in verses 18 through 21. Um, He first deals with the fact of their insignificance. In other words, they appear to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous, uh, powerful. But notice how Job now describes them in the first line of verse 18. They are insignificant on the surface of the waters, or they are light on the surface of the waters. And the figure is, boys and girls, if you stood over the creek or stream and you throw a stick into it, what happens to the stick? It quickly is carried away. He's comparing the the lives of these prosperous, wicked people as to be no more significant than a stick thrown in the water. They think they're great, but in fact, the Holy Spirit teaches us they're not great. Their lives are but a passing fancy, and soon they will be washed away. The curse of God is on their lives, regardless of what they say or pretend. He goes on to say, by the curse of God in their lives, that they don't really get to enjoy that which they've taken by oppression or robbery. Second two lines of verse 18, their portion is cursed on the earth. They do not turn toward the vineyards. Now, We saw last week what their portion is, and these are the things they got by oppression. Oppressing the poor, stealing from their neighbors, things they heaped together. Um, They filled their barns, they padded their bank accounts. But you see what he's saying here is, is that that portion is cursed. Maybe they don't even realize it, but it's it's like poison. And in fact, he says... In the last line, they're not going to turn toward their vineyards. They've stolen the vineyards. And they've made wine from the vineyards. But they're not really going to enjoy the wine of the vineyards because of their oppression of the poor. When I read of this, I I thought about how the curse of God pursues the wicked. And you know who came to mind was Ahab. Now, Ahab... You remember had Naboth, his neighbor, murdered because he wanted his vineyard for a vegetable garden. And so they arranged for the murder of Naboth. But then the prophet Elijah comes to him and pronounces a curse against Ahab for that. Exactly what would happen to him in terms of his violent death and the dogs licking up the blood from the bottom of the chariot. You see, God's curse pursued Ahab as relentlessly as the Israeli Mossad pursued Adolf Eichmann. I can imagine that Eichmann, every time the door knocked, would shudder. He was a fugitive. 
And though he had an, a, a normal and prosperous life in terms of all outward appearances, the curse, the judgment was hanging over his head. And so it is, even when God allows the wicked to pursue their folly, the curse and judgment, even in their current life, hangs over their head. In their conscience, they're waiting for every knock on the door, every headache. They think, I have a brain aneurysm. Every stomach ache, I must have colon cancer. They live in constant dread, even though it might never appear, because they live in this life under the curse of God. But they also live under the curse of the reality of death. So he goes on in verses 19 and 20. Drought and heat consume the snow water, so does Sheol, those who have sinned. A mother will forget him. The worm feeds sweetly till he's no longer remembered. And wickedness will be broken like a tree. Again, boys and girls, when we have our annual snow, which I don't think we got last winter, really, we're all excited, but what happens within a day or two? It's a mess because the sun shines on the snow and the snow melts. And Job here takes that, what snow does or summer heat, what, uh, what rain does or summer heat does to snow to the awful reality of death. Death is inevitable. That's what he's saying here. But it's not just death that's inevitable. Notice he says, so Sheol consumes those who have sinned. Now, Sheol, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks, can refer to the place of hell. But it also means grave. But when it's used of grave, it's always used of grave as a punishment for evil doing. And so he's speaking here now of death and burial as punishment for their sin. As sure as the sun comes up in the morning... As sure as the sun melts snow in the midday, so surely the wicked shall not only die, but they're going to die under the curse of God. They're going to die and be buried as an act of judgment. And their death will be ignominious. Even their mothers won't mourn them. Now, in the first place, notice that they're going to die, a lot of them, before their mothers. But even... What's being stated here is is that uh, the one person that should mourn the death of her children is a mother. But these men are wicked. Uh, They are notorious. So that oftentimes even their mothers are thankful. Mothers have lived in fear of them as well. And they don't mourn their death. What's their reward? It's put so graphically. The worm feeds sweetly. That is remembered no more. They can be buried, as we saw a few weeks ago, in very expensive tombs and mausoleums and everything else. They can't keep out the worm. And the worm gnaws and destroys that body. That's all that's left. Worm food. And their memory perishes with worm food. And then he extends the figure that wickedness will be broken like a tree. Now we think of a, a dead tree. And it's just uh, hanging there, rotten. And soon it, it falls to the ground and crumbles 
in pieces. And that is the reality of the death, the curse of death on the wicked. And the Holy Spirit would want all of you to think about this this morning. Because if you're not in Christ, this is the reality. Regardless of of how well you live now, this is the reality of death for you. It's the death of punishment. The grave is a place of cursing. And you shall fall into it like a dead, rotten tree. But notice as well a contrast here. A contrast with how the death of the wicked is, uh, the Spirit describes the death of the wicked, with how the Bible describes the death of the righteous. Think about the New Testament. I know we've already seen this in Job. But how is death of the believer most often described? Falling asleep. What does Jesus say about his friend Lazarus? He is falling asleep. I really marvel when the Spirit describes the the death of Stephen by stoning. And the very last verse of the seventh chapter is, he fell asleep. Or what Paul reminds us of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, we don't mourn for those who have fallen asleep. You see, the Bible takes the believer's death and describes it in a gentle way. It's falling asleep. This is wonderfully captured by the Westminster Confession, Short of Catechism 37. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. But notice this. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Yes, even when a body is exhumed like Wycliffe's and ashes thrown into the Thames because our Savior is omniscient. He keeps the very DNA of that body in union with himself the assurance of a resurrection from the dead. And that's why, dear friends, you do not need to be afraid of death. Death is, in ultimate reality, after a long, hard day, and you go to bed, and you fall asleep. No more physical pain, and sorrow, and difficulty. And the soul immediately flies away right into the arms of the triune God to rest with him forevermore and await the day of resurrection and the soul and body shall be rejoined. And so the reality that Job sets forth here is that God does curse the wicked in this life, even though it may not be apparent, even though it's only in the back of their minds what's going on, they live daily under the curse of God. But that brings us to the second thing here in verses 22 to 25. Well, I left out the fact, why does he go back then in verse 21 and mention again the consequences? He he did this earlier. He wrongs the barren woman. He does no good for the widow. Well, what he's doing here is showing then in their death that as they did not pity the weak and the poor, God will show them no pity. That's the reality of the curse of God in their lives. But then in verses 22 to 25, he shows how God bears long with the wicked in this life. In 22, he drags off the valiant by his power. He rises, but no one has assurance of life. Now, depending on your version of Bible this morning, this verse can be translated actually in one of three ways. 
And the problem is, uh, these, all these pronouns, as I mentioned last week, you have to understand the pronouns in these speeches oftentimes from the context. Now, the ESV adds the word God to the first line, and it says that God drags off the valiant by his power, but that word's not in the text. It's simply the word he. Now, because of this, some Bibles will take verse 22 to be apart with verse 21, continuing to talk about the uh, oppression of the wicked. He wrongs the barren woman. He does no good. He drags off the valiant by his power. He rises. No one has assurance of life. And that way, you're letting the previous context of the previous verse help you interpret the pronouns in this verse. But why then does the ESV supply the word God? That's because... That's being directed by the context of verse 25. And I think it fits better with what goes on to say in verse 25. One of the differences in verse, uh, in the ESV, the second line is they rise, but no one has assurance of life. The word is not they, it's he. So um, I think it's also talking about God. So I think what we have here in the proper translation and interpretation of verse 22 is that God drags off the valiant by his power. God rises and, the word's not but's not there, and no one has assurance of life. So as Job begins to deal with what I'm calling the forbearance of God, bearing long with the wicked, he begins by pointing out the reality that they uh, are under the sovereign hand of God. They are like prisoners in chains. And thus the language, he drags off the valiant. They are the valiant, bold, and strong ones. But by his power, by his strength, he has taken hold of them. He has them in chains. They cannot escape his judgment. And so he says, God rises, and they have no assurance of life. They don't know what tomorrow brings. They simply are being held, in a sense, on death row by God. Now, maybe on death row, they're eating well and having lots of privileges, but they're on God's death row under his sovereignty. Now, that helps us understand this very strange remark of Job in verse 23. As God holds them as prisoners, what's he doing? He provides them with security, and they are supported. Hmm. In other words, he's got them in chains. He's leading them to their judgment. But meanwhile, Job is saying that God actually has outwardly blessed them. God has actually given them strength in their wicked endeavors. God has enabled them by his sovereignty to prosper. Now, just stop and think about it. That's not strange at all. Remember what uh, Isaiah says about the Assyrians in Isaiah chapter 10. It's a remarkable parallel or or outworking of what Job says here in in, um, half a verse. Isaiah says of the Assyrians in 10, verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I sent it against the godless nation and commissioned it against the people of my fury to capture booty, to seize plunder, 
to trample them down like mud in the streets. He says, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. Verse 15, is the ax to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club yielding those who lift it. In other words, they were the instruments of God, the same way an axe is in your hand or a hammer. But God prospered them in those wicked pursuits in order to accomplish holy purposes. God says the same thing about Habakkuk and uh, Habakkuk chapter about Babylon, Habakkuk chapter one, doesn't he? Or what Paul says about uh, uh, Pharaoh in Romans nine seventeen. Uh, For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And so he proclaims here that God, who holds these people by his power, going to bring them to Sheol and to judgment, temporarily prospers them in their pursuits according to his own good pleasure. But notice the second half of verse 24. Moreover, they're brought low, and like everything gathered up, even like heads of grain, they're cut off. So even if God makes them fat, then they're like wonderful uh, <coughs> wheat ready to be harvested. They're, 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 they're stooped over. They're so fat with grain. They're simply waiting for the angel to be sent forth in Revelation 14 with the scythe to cut them off and destroy them. Or another parallel that came to my mind is a, a thousand-pound steer has been fattened in the feedlot. He might be slain. And the psalmist teaches us in Psalm 92, God fattens them for a while, but it's that they might be then brought under his judgment. That's the reality of what God is doing as he bears long with the wickedness life. He never does so with an eye on perfect justice. You need to understand this. And Job's absolutely convinced of it. Notice how he concludes in verse 25. (laughs) Now, if it's not so, who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? My, how he's grown in his struggling and in his confidence. He knows now on the basis of the leading of the Holy Spirit that this is exactly what's taking place. The judgment is deferred, but God is just. And always exercises a perfect, just judgment. Uh, this is Job's last speech in the cycle. And we come to Piltad's speech next week. And you see, basically, he's, he's speechless. He should have kept his mouth shut. Because he cannot answer Job. And they'll say later that they had no answer to Job. They could not in any way counter the careful arguments he's laid out. So we'll see next week what Bildaz does is, is talk about the holiness and righteousness of God and try to accuse Job of self-righteousness. But no more do they try to convince Job that he's suffering because of sin. No, he has silenced him. But here the Spirit teaches us that though God will bear along with the wicked of this life, they will never escape his judgment. And I want to draw out three very important applications. And two of them are doctrinal. Sometimes we forget, and I mentioned this to you men who prepare for the ministry, that 
Theological instruction is one of the purposes of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16. That all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for instruction. And the very first thing I want you to think about this morning is something that maybe you've not thought as much about. And it's marked the whole service, and that is what I'm referring to as the forbearance or long-suffering of God. It's a peculiarity of providence that uh, God does this, but it is for the exaltation of his nature. And and you just think about it, it's, it's throughout Scripture. He bore along with Cain. He gave the generation of Noah's days 120 years. He gave Sodom and Gomorrah decades He gave his own children centuries. I've just been reading in Deuteronomy the curses of God and what he would do. Or in Psalm 78, how he judged them out of the judges, but he kept bringing them back. And he he actually waited centuries before he executed uh, the final expulsion by the Assyrians in the 700s and by the Babylonians in the 500s. Or the old covenant church, 40 years after they murdered their Savior. God bore along with them and then destroyed them in 70 A.D. This is the reality the Bible teaches us about God. Your Fox devotees need to think about this. God is on the throne. God bears long, but there is an appointed time of judgment. Now, why? Why does God bear long? Well, there are a number of reasons, and one of the first the Bible gives us is to allow the wickedness to be filled up. This is what he says to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 16, when he's promised that in 400 years, his descendants will come back and possess the land. But he says, why am I waiting in the fourth generation that will return here For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. When God judged them, it would be such a fury that he wanted perfectly evident that they deserved all, not just men, women, children, deserved all that God would bring upon them by uh, his own uh, threshing people. And that is true. You understand it. We are appalled with what the wicked get away with around the world and persecuting the church and what they're accomplishing in our own country. But you understand all God is doing is allowing these wicked people to fill up the measure, the measure of their sin. And God will come forth with a furious judgment on them. You rest confidently in that reality. But also as he's doing that, we see his tenderness. As we said in, in 2 Peter 3, 9, that, you know, that, that all might come to faith. And Paul says in Romans 2, 4, Do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Even as he's bearing long with the wicked, he's calling to them to repent, to come to me, to seek grace and, and to seek mercy. Perhaps this morning you're here. You're one of those who have said, well, I can't be that bad because God is is blessing me greatly and uh, all's well with me. Do you understand that that's not God's approval of your lifestyle? It's not God's approval of your refusal to take hold of Christ Jesus. It's God's patience 
He's wooing you. He's saying, oh, repent of your sin. Take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third reason for God's forbearance is he's also created the um, framework uh, by which he then is going to bring his people to uh, saving faith. And so, in fact, God bears long that he then might um, make his gospel known to his people. Paul says this in Romans 9. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And so Paul is reminding us that God bears along with the wicked to make room for the progress of the gospel. That's God's forbearance, and it's a great truth on which to meditate. Second, I want you to think about the, the grounds or the basis of God's forbearance, because it's not whimsical. In fact, it's actually based on the Noahic covenant. And again, the Noahic covenant is often just misunderstood. It's not simply a covenant of of common grace. It's the covenant of God's forbearance. He destroyed the whole world in order to demonstrate his justice. But notice what he says in Genesis 8.21, when out of the ark, Noah offers a sacrifice. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I've done. Now, does that not strike you as strange? Because it's exactly the same reason he gave us in in chapter 6, verse 5, for destroying all flesh. What's he doing? Because I've demonstrated judgment. But I can't keep demonstrating judgment. Because if I do, there'll never be a platform for the advance of the gospel. And so there's this one singular manifestation of God's hatred for sin. There'll be temporal judgments, both corporately and individually, throughout history. But God, by this covenant, has sworn not to wipe out the human race, our people in their sin, as he makes way for the purposes of grace. But I want you to think about how that relates to the cross work of Christ. As we come to the Lord's table the next week, we glory in the doctrine that Christ's saving death was only for his elect people. But that's not the full extent of what Christ was doing on the cross. You see, the Noahic covenant was also sealed by a sacrifice, sacrifice that points to the atonement of Christ. Now, what does the atonement of Christ have to do with God's forbearance. It's purchased the forbearance. And Paul says this, I think, in Romans chapter 3, as he talks about justification, the basis of redemption, Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate the righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. See, what Paul's saying is that the perfect judgment of God was displayed publicly at Calvary, a manifestation of God's hatred for sin and destroying his own son on the cross. 
And that also sealed benefits of forbearance. Didn't purchase eternal life. But it simply should broaden your wonder and awe at the wisdom of God and what the Savior did on the cross. It brings us to a very practical thing, though. I want you to think about God's forbearance in your own life. This past Tuesday was the 52nd anniversary of my ordination. It was a good time. It was a sobering time, though, as I, as I reflected on unfaithfulness throughout the years, sinful patterns, and I marveled at God's gentleness and his long-suffering. And so you should do that because he's so patient with us. That being in Exodus, compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. And the psalmist says, it's by his gentleness he makes us great. I would encourage you to think often about the past and about your feckless faithfulness, faithlessness about God's forbearance, that you'll rejoice in it, and that you then will learn forbearance. You know, Paul twice talks about our forbearing with one another, and we all need that in the congregation, don't we? We need to be on the receiving end of forbearance. But when you realize how God is born patiently with you, that will help you bear patiently with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Oh, glorious, great God, we thank you for this doctrine of forbearance. We revel, Lord, in its reality, in this revelation of you, another aspect of this profound nature of God. We th- Thank you for its relationship to your wisdom and the Noahic covenant and what Christ has done for the world in this one regard as he has purchased forbearance as well. We pray, Lord, for any people here this day who have not clothed with Christ, that even the Spirit would take these words to convict them of of danger, but of the hope that's in Christ. We pray that we've grown in our grasp of knowledge, Lord, of of what forbearance is and, and some of the reasons why you forbear. And that we will rejoice in the reality, Lord, of your forbearance in our own lives and learn to be patient with one another. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.